Let me ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. As we have read this each week, uh, as we've been in this series, we have heard it sung and we have sung these words. Uh, let's once again give our attention to these words of, of Jesus seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, as we bow before you, we pray once again that you would open our hearts, our minds to you, enable us to hear from you, to be moved by you where we need to be, to be comforted where we need comfort. Lord, we know that there is no blessing, there is no blessedness unless it comes from you. And so here we are before you pleading for that, not because we deserve it, but because you have told us that you're our Father. We come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we've been talking about uh, the, the irony of the kingdom, and in, in each case, each one of these phrases, we absolutely see that again. Here we are, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, we've talked about the word blessed and how uh, it uh, could be translated happy, but it's not a happiness that's determined by the circumstances around us, but rather it's something more, something deeper. And so we, we have been told already, uh, happy are you if you're poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. And here it says, happy are the hungry. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not exactly how I think. And I, I know that, uh, you know, typically 
around this time of uh, the morning. Some of you are thinking of hunger. Your stomachs are growling. You thought I couldn't hear it from up there, didn't you? But I know that's the case. And when mine is growling, my first thought is not, oh, that's a happy feeling. And so here again we see this irony of the kingdom where there's something he is saying that is eternally, spiritually happy about being in this state of hunger and thirst. Now we see elsewhere in the Scripture, in Psalm 42, and we're going to sing these words in a little while, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, the reality is, I know there are some here who have, but most of us have not experienced absolute hunger and absolute thirst. We tend to think, you know, I'm we use the word I'm starving. And I will say this, I have gone to the grocery store when I've been hungry and it's altered my behavior. You know, I bought things I didn't need to buy because it was clear to me I I needed those things, so that's not a good idea. But in terms of, you know, uh, hunger, it's, it's more because I went over today or you've just done the lawn, that's the thirsty part, or gone for a run or something like that. Well... There is a hunger and there is a thirst much deeper than that. Some of you have experienced it. I read an account, and this is from a major in World War I. It's from the book, The Last Crusade. And he was talking about the thirst of, uh, that his men suffered in uh, the desert uh, as they were fighting their way toward a place where there was water. And of course, those who were there were absolutely trying to defend that area. And I've, I've edited this, some of it, I, I, you know, would be inappropriate to share out loud. But he said, he said this, Our heads ached, our eyes became bloodshot and dim in the blinding glare. This is during the fight. Our tongues began to swell. Those who dropped out of the column were never seen again. But the desperate force battled into Sharia. There were wells there that they battled for. We fought that day as men fight for their lives. We entered Sharia's uh, station on the heels of the retreating Turks. The first objects which met our view were the great stone cisterns full of cold, clear drinking water. It took four hours before the last man had his drink of water. I believe we all learned our first real Bible lesson on that march. If such were our thirst for God and for righteousness, for His will in our lives, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich in the fruit of the Spirit would we be? Now, that physical thirst 
or a hunger to that same degree is what he's talking about. He's talking about uh, a hunger or a thirst where we are so desperate, we are convinced that we will die if we don't get that which we hunger and thirst for. In this case, in this portion of Scripture, he says it's righteousness. Now, in what sense? What in the world is that saying? Now, there are several in the Scripture kinds of righteousness. One is what I would call an initial righteousness. We sometimes theologically, let's do some theology here, we, we call it justification. It's, it's on the, the front end. It is pertaining to our salvation. This is what the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Therefore, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's on that front end. It is, it is uh, where it is given to us in a legal way. We are declared to be righteous, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ did in His perfect life, in His uh, perfect death, in His resurrection. Because of that, His righteousness becomes ours. That is a legal kind of righteousness. There is an old tale. I read about it uh, this week, again in a book. A man who died and faced uh, the angel Gabriel. Um, by the way, don't get your theology from old tales or from, from jokes, but anyway, he, he faced the angel Gabriel at heaven, in, at the gates of heaven. And Gabriel said this. Here's how it works. It takes 100 points to get into heaven. And the man said, well, okay, how do I get points? Well, tell me about good things you have done. And so the man said, well, okay, I was married to my wife for 50 years, and I was faithful. I did not cheat on my wife, and I loved her. Gabriel said, very good. That's good for three points. The man said, three points for that? He went on, well, okay, I, I went to church to worship and Sunday school every single week throughout my life. Very good, Gabriel said. Two more points. The man began to get a little concerned. And so he said, well, all right, well, I opened a shelter for the homeless and we fed them there out of mercy and out of love for my fellow man. Gabriel said, one, one point for that. Very, very good. And the man, in desperation, said, 
at this rate, the only way I'll get into heaven is by the grace of God. Gabriel said, come in. You see, that's what it is. It's when we get to that point where we are so absolutely desperate that we see all of these things that we think we have accumulated in our own righteousness are not going to get us into heaven. It's at that point that we experience His grace. Now, I've told you that in terms of the Beatitudes, that these build on one another. How does this one about hungry and thirsting for righteousness build on the previous ones? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary put it this way. Uh, The Beatitude follows logically from the previous one. See it as a statement to which all the others lead. I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. Now, remember, in my very first message about Uh, the Beatitudes, I said, this is for believers. If you're an unbeliever, I'm glad you're here. You will hear the truth that brings you into this position, but these are aimed at believers. Now, here's what he goes on to say. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite sure you're a Christian. If it is not, you had better examine your foundations again. Now, how so? Well, let's look at the other kinds of righteousness because even though that that first part is absolutely the foundation, that's how you are a part of the kingdom, I am convinced that Jesus wasn't talking about that kind of righteousness because it's not something that we will hunger or thirst for. It's something that He gives to us. He declares us to be. So what was the kind of righteousness? Well, if you have the outline, you see I've, I've named it ongoing righteousness or righteousness that comes in response to the previous righteousness we talked about. A moral righteousness. Now, we we went through the book of James uh, last year, and uh, in James 2, it says this. This is as good a place as anywhere to summarize this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, we we make it clear here every single week that we are not saved by our works. This does not teach we are saved by our works. It is a result of faith. The Reformation principle is believers are saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. In other words, a true faith will have that which flows from it. 
And it will be these good things, these good works that flow from that faith that is already in our hearts. That's a part of the righteousness I'm convinced that Jesus is talking about here. Now, that kind of focus on righteousness does take a little clarification, though. The reason it takes some explaining is that there, in my view, is a misunderstanding on both views of uh, both ends of the spectrum when it, when it comes to uh, doing that which is right and uh, obeying God's commands. On the one end, it can become, it can appear that the Christian life is just a bunch of rules to be kept. In other words, uh, yeah, and maybe you grew up in a church like this that had the rules, we don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't, yeah, we don't go with girls that do, right? And, and, and that's our identity, according to some. Or we don't drink, and that's our, you know, we don't, in other words, we become identified not by who we are, if we're not careful, but we become identified by what we don't do. And that's not what the Scripture is saying in terms of obedience and righteousness. And the problem with those rules, that's why I don't give you rules to live by. There are commands from God. But you're not going to have a bunch of church rules from me or the leadership in this church. Because then you just say, either I'll keep them or I won't keep them. But, and if you keep them, that can lead to a spiritual pride. Now, the other end of the spectrum are those, some of them that grew up in that kind of a church or that kind of a family that had all of these rules and that determined whether you were a good person or not. And, and they so reject that that they go clear the other way and can almost become what theologically we'd call antinomian. In other words, against the law. They are opposed to anything, and they uh, love their freedom in Christ, which is a good thing to love, but they flaunt their activities. They love living kind of out there on the edge, but they say it's my freedom in Christ that lets me do all of these things, and it doesn't matter one bit. And you know what? That can lead to spiritual pride as well. Either end of the spectrum. So that's the, that's the, the second kind of righteousness, and that is doing that which God has commanded in His Word out of a love for Him, out of a gratitude to Him. What Jesus did on the cross fulfills righteousness and then it frees us to live righteous lives. Not to earn our way to heaven, but out of a gratitude to Him because He's told us what is best for us. So it's a hunger and a thirst, an intense desire to respond to what Jesus did on the cross for me and a gratitude that should characterize the believer, not doing things merely out of duty. Duty's not wrong, but it's not merely out of duty. It's out of a love for Christ. It's 
So can you see how an attitude of not caring what kind of life you live, saying, oh, well, you know, because of grace and because I'm already saved, it doesn't matter what I do. Can you see how that doesn't fit with a right attitude of a true follower of Christ? Now, there's a third kind of righteousness, and and that I've called a social righteousness. Matthew 6 not very long after Jesus gave the Beatitudes in in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You recognize that from what we call the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. That is desiring a righteousness in my own life, but also all around In the place that we live, we want that which is right and God-honoring. Now, we live in a fallen world, so that will never be perfect that way. And yet, it ought to be that which we are hungering and thirsting after. That the righteousness would prevail even in the world where we live. Now, in terms of this doctrine, again, there is a dangerous, wrong theology that that is in other world religions pertaining to righteousness and in some denominations as well. And what they have done is they have reversed the order of the way the Scripture says It really works. In other words, they would say, this is where salvation comes from. One, number one, you do good to others. Social righteousness. And then they would say, number two, live an upright life, trying to do whatever God has said to do. That's important too. And then number three, if you do number one and number two well enough, then you will achieve number three, and that is a relationship with God. But that's the exact opposite of the way the Scripture brings it to us. That instead, as we have said, it's about His righteousness He bestows on us that then flows out into a personal and a social righteousness. Now, what about satisfaction? It says, you'll be, for they will be satisfied if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, eventually. It is an eventual thing. Some of you are not hungering and thirsting for righteousness for one very good reason. It's because you've never experienced the gift of eternal life. There's nothing there. So you don't know what to hunger for. You don't have a hunger, you don't have a thirst for God and for His righteousness. As Lloyd-Jones says, you better examine your foundations if you don't have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, 
look, I'm not, I'm not trying to shake anyone who has true faith, who has a relationship with Christ. I'm not trying to shake you out of that or get you to doubt that. I would never want to do that to the true believer. But there's one thing that I fear even more, and that is for someone to be sitting in our congregation or visit our congregation and think they're just fine with God and them not be saved. That would be far, far worse. It's not about me just saying, okay, now get up there, get out there and be hungry and thirsty. I, I could say that all day. And you're not going to get it. You're not going to be hungry and thirsty for him if you just leave it at that. Let me illustrate it with my life. Um, physically, ever since I was in college, I've struggled with my weight. Now, I know that is hard to believe. I know. I understand. But, but I have. It's been a, a, a struggle for me. I've fought it. So I am in one of two states. I am either losing weight or I'm hungry. Okay? That's a, that, those are the... I've kind of broken my life down into those, those two. Well... The thing I thought about this week as I grappled with this text is that unfortunately, the one place in my life that I am sometimes not experiencing hunger is exactly here. Hungering for righteousness in a way that I should. Now, if you asked me, I'd say, of course I, I, want, I want to do what is pleasing to him. But I'm talking about the kind of hunger that we described earlier. That if I don't get it, I will die. And that's far too rare. Early in this series, we sang, and I've each week quoted at least a portion from Rock of Ages. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal not rest but know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And then it says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash my, me, Savior, or I die. Now, when we sing that, typically, I suspect, in most of our minds, we are thinking about that first kind of righteousness. We are thinking about our salvation. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling, and we're saying... I know I could not purchase my salvation. 
And most of us are pretty clear on that. But there is a danger. Because this, I don't know what was in the the author's head, the hymn writer's head, but this applies just as much to our life every single day after that as it did when we came to Christ. We have not really grasped His grace if we think that He loves me today because of what I'm bringing to Him in my hand. And I've got to do this and this and this so He will love me still because the danger of that is some days we will have little to bring Him and we will wonder if He loves us little. And that's not the case. Not until we reach heaven will we be completely full and satisfied. Until then, like the physical hunger and thirst, we must get up every day and do that which for me would be contrary to do physically, to to want more appetite, but spiritually, to ask Him, ask God to increase our appetite, our thirst for righteousness. He will do that. Let's bow together. Thank you, Lord, that it it is because of the righteousness of Christ that we can even speak to you. We have no right. We don't deserve to be called children of the living God except in Jesus Christ. But Lord, will you take us beyond that initial experience of salvation and to know that absolutely we need your grace because we will be empty and we will not be hungry or thirsty unless you give that to us. And then, Lord, will you, for the moment, satisfy us only with you? Quench our thirst only with you as a foretaste of that day when we will be with you forever and be fully satisfied. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.